0: This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. They're basically just giving advice that anyone with a diet sheet and a CGM could figure out for themselves. But that doesn't sound sexy, does it? It it sounds sexy when you say, oh, we're measuring the microbiome. It's personalized. We can predict what your glucose is going to be. It's like, yeah, of course you can, because you're you're predicting that a high-protein, low-carb diet Lowers glucose, and there's data showing that it does.
1: Welcome to Wellness Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction. When it comes to your health, it's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness.
2: Hi, everyone. I am so excited to be back on Wellness Fact Versus Fiction with one of my favorite people on earth, my good friend and brilliant nutrition scientist, Dr. Nicole Guess. Dr. Nicola Guess is a dietitian from London. She's an RD PhD. She currently leads the management of National Type 2 Diabetes Remission Program at the University of Oxford. Her research and clinical interests are predominantly in diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and cardiometabolic disease. Dr. Guess is one of my very good friends. She, if you follow her on social media, you know she's a bit of a no-nonsense, no bullshit. <laughs> All things evidence-based dietetics, and she is just an incredible science communicator. She's well-known for her tutorials that include some hilarious GIFs incorporated in, um, and I'm so thankful to have her as my friend and colleague. So welcome, Dr. Guess. Thank you, Dr. Volado. Nice to chat with you. Nice to chat with you, my friend. So today, uh, for everyone listening, we are going to just dive straight in. We're talking about a hot topic that you have seen all over Instagram. You have seen all over social media. You've seen it probably everywhere humanly possible. And that's this thing called personalized nutrition. There's so many different companies claiming to have a personalized nutrition program. They are variable from, you know, whether it's an app or whether it's an individual biomarker or gut microbiome, there's so many out there. So we want to get down to the fact versus fiction when it comes to personalized nutrition. So, Dr. Guess, first and foremost, can you just give everyone a little bit of background about you and your research interests and then we'll dive into this hot topic. Sure. As uh, so you
0: covered, I think the the key parts of it in your intro. So, I have wonderfully combined a research and clinical career Almost serendipitously for the last 10 years, kind of unintentionally. Like, I like doing clinical work and I like doing research. And what I've really found is the two are so complementary because my patients teach me a ton. And actually, a lot of my research studies that I'm now doing have come from things that my patients have taught me and what's needed. But at the same time, knowing the research and really specializing in the research, so I know the scientific literature really well, enables me to be a really good clinical dietitian. In my specialist area, because I understand a lot about what food and nutrients does to the underlying pathophysiology of type two, so I can do what I would call, because I I think we're going to come into this, I can do personal personalized nutrition, because it's personalized based on the person and their needs, and some understanding of what nutrients need to change to improve the management of the condition. Perfectly said.
2: So then getting right into it, then let's start with what is personalized nutrition? Because uh, if you Google it, there's information about personalized nutrition ranging from the NIH all the way to various apps and various programs you can pay for that are all over the place worldwide that claim to target nutrition for your specific, whether it's genetics or gut microbiome, et cetera. So give everyone an intro into even what personalized nutrition is. I mean, so there's no definition. So some parts of personalized
0: nutrition are legitimate. So for example, what a clinical dietitian would do in a one-to-one consult- consultation is personalized nutrition. You don't give them a diet sheet and say have five fruit and veg a day, uh, you know, cut red meat twice a week. You would give them advice based on their personal needs. That's personalized nutrition, that's fine. Other aspects of personalized nutrition can be apps which use data available based on what a person is currently eating to give them very specific advice to direct them towards a healthier diet. And that's app-based personalized nutrition. And again, I think there's some data behind that and it's legitimate. What I have the biggest problem with is the personalized nutrition that claims that our biology is so different and that we respond differently to the same foods And on that basis, we need to have very specific diets. And there is a lot of biological plausibility that people do respond differently to foods and people do respond differently to nutrients. But the question always has to be, does it matter clinically? And so this is where evidence comes in, right? Like, let's say, for example, any company claiming that people who have a certain gut microbiome, like, we'll get into that because what does that even mean? If people are claiming you have this kind of, or an excess of this bacteria or not enough of this bacteria in your gut, you therefore need to have more or less sauerkraut. And that's going to influence your cardiovascular risk. You'd want some evidence behind that, wouldn't you? You'd need a clinical trial. So this is the kind of stuff that I'm talking about with personalized nutrition, where it's claiming to be based like on biomarkers, on a metabolome. Microbiome, and it's all this sexy sciencey language that I think isn't backed up by the evidence, and therefore this scientific v- vocabulary is used to trick the consumer into thinking, "Oh man, this sounds legit. This sounds like real science. Let me pay two hundred pounds or dollars for this particular product."
2: That is such a great point. One of the greatest points uh, that we we reiterate lots on this podcast is that pseudoscience is, you know very confusing because it sounds very sciencey. That's the thing about it is that, you know, it doesn't sound like something that uh, is misinformation. It doesn't sound like something that is made up. It literally sounds super sciencey, And oftentimes a lot of these companies are backed by even well-known scientists. Yeah. And unfortunately, as you and I both know that there's a wide variety, it doesn't matter if you're at, Harvard or Stanford or anywhere, um, there's a wide variety of scientists or physicians who will sell out and will uh, will hawk products or programs that are not based in the scientific evidence. And and unfortunately, because of authority bias, um, we often believe and fall into it because of where they're a professor at or what the research they've done. Um, and so, I definitely think that's really hard for listeners to kind of you know sort out, which is a lot why we discuss guidelines on the podcast being the, uh, at least in the United States, with regards to um, our guidelines, or medical guidelines, make recommendations based on, you know, grading and strict criteria of evidence. So yeah, a lot of these different kinds of programs, because we have so many of them that are available online, As you mentioned, there's one that I'm reading now. It says, complete your test. So you test your gut, blood fat, and blood sugar with an at-home kit. And then six weeks later, you receive a personalized insight report that gives you a week-by-week tailored plan to your biology. So what are your thoughts about something like that?
0: I mean, I don't know the particular website you're looking at, but I've seen a couple of websites. And you're exactly right when you say they have this veneer. Of respectability and legitimacy, because they have the Harvard image stamped all over the web page. They have all of the big schools they're working with, but they also have research papers. And the most people won't read or, or maybe have the skills to read a research paper. They'll just say, oh, it's been published in a peer-reviewed scientific journal, and they'll just think it's legitimate. I, I I've looked at the data available for those kind of claims. In other words, we can tell by your microbiome. And by your glucose um, responses, what kind of foods you should be eating or eating. And basically, when you look at what they're advising, it's basically a reduced carbohydrate, high protein diet. So there's a paper by ZV et al. This is one of the ones I tweeted about, and they claim to have an algorithm that can tell you what specific foods you should eat based on your unique biology. So this was done by an Israeli group. So one of the first papers was published in Cell, like super legitimate, high-impact journal. And they actually had a a nice study design initially, and I think they did a good job in the methodology, but I just think they've over-egged their conclusions. So basically what they did, they wanted to understand differences and responses to the same food. So they took 800 people, they gave them, uh, I think it was bread, and they gave it twice to each person. I think they gave glucose twice to each person. And then there was another product. It might have been another carbohydrate food, like a cereal or something. So it's three different types of carbohydrate. They were given twice to each individual. And the idea of that was they wanted to look at what's the normal within person variability to um, carbohydrate. And this is really important to note because we've known for decades that postprandial glucose responses within a person. Are really variable. So, even if you were to give someone oral glucose tolerance test, so you're removing the complexity of the food matrix, it's a very predictable, you would think, response. It's 75 grams of glucose, and you give it in a very standardized way. Even when we do that, you get marked differences within an individual in their postprandial response. And it's a really clinically significant difference. So, for example, you could give someone a glucose tolerance test on Monday and they would come out as pre-diabetic, you would give the same test a week later and they might come out normal. That's how large the variability is. So one of the reasons why the Israeli investigators gave the same uh, stimulus or carbohydrate stimulus twice was to try to look at what's the intra-individual variation and then see whether the difference between the individuals was greater. Um, And I'm not clear that they've shown that or any other group have shown that the inter-individual difference uh, is significant when we look, when we compare it to the intra individual In other words, there's so much natural variability. Does it even matter that there are probably small differences between individuals? But nonetheless, I have to acknowledge a lot of that is based on really complex math. But other individuals, uh, Tom Williver, I I tweeted about that, has a great paper where he's also a little bit sceptical. But nonetheless, you know, keep an open mind. Maybe that's the case. Like they designed a study uh, which did seek to look at that. And credit to them, after examining all of the intra-individual responses and inter-individual responses to glucose, they measured uh, the gut microbiome. Um, They took clinical factors like sleep and physical activity. They bunged this all into a machine learning um, process and came out with an algorithm that they said would predict what any individual's glucose response would be. And they verified that in a separate cohort. And so all of that's kind of cross-sectional. None of that really excited me. But what they also did in this paper was they did a trial. And so they took individuals, did a baseline assessment, and used the baseline assessment to predict using the gut microbiome they claim what an individual's blood glucose uh, responses to food would be and therefore gave them personalized diets. Now, if an investigators are claiming that people genuinely have different responses to the same food, I would expect the diet that they're giving to individuals to vary immensely too, right? And when I hear people talking about this personalized nutrition, you know, that people respond so differently, I would expect the diets to look very, very different. But actually, if you look at the results of their algorithm in that paper, all they did was recommend that people, everyone, not just some individuals, everyone uh, stop eating high fat, high GI carbohydrates. So it's like they told everyone to stop eating pizza. Um, And they told everyone, not just some people, but everyone to consume intact grains or high protein foods. And what we know from, from lots of data is that particularly in people with type 2 diabetes, but even in normal individuals or non-diabetic individuals, more protein and less carbohydrate lowers glucose. So that's basically what they did. There was no personalization. They told everyone to have more protein and told everyone to have less carbohydrate. To me, that's not personalization. I think all that they've done is their postprandial glucose measurements have shown them what we've known for decades. And I don't understand why they're ascribing this to the microbiome. I I don't think the microbiome added any predictive value in their model whatsoever. They're basically just giving advice that anyone with a diet sheet and a CGM could figure out for themselves. But that doesn't sound sexy, does it? It it sounds sexy when you say, oh, we're measuring the microbiome. It's personalized. We can predict what your glucose is going to be. It's like, yeah, of course you can, because you're you're predicting that a high-protein, low-carb diet lowers glucose, and there's data showing that it does. And actually in their second paper, I think it was published in Diabetes Care, they show the predicted diet, this personalized diet, and it was about 20% of calories from carbohydrate and 25% of calories from protein. And that's pretty close to what clinical crossover studies have found, low as glucose. So it's, it's not personalized. Whenever you hear these people talk about it, you think, oh, well, this means that person can have new potatoes with no impact on the blood glucose, whereas this person can have pizza because they've got a different microbiome. It's not individualized in the way that they're selling. It's just they're using CGM data and pretending that it's all this kind of fancy machine learning and algorithms to give them advice that I could give them on a diet
2: sheet. That's so interesting, especially because as you and I both know that you can't even diagnose diabetes with a CGM, it's interstitial glucose. So that doesn't even meet criteria for diagnosis. And postprandial hyperglycemia, uh, you know, gets pathologized so much for profit. What's interesting too, is that with, especially with type two diabetes and glycemia, we both know that we have patients that can be on an incredibly high carb, plant-based diet, lose weight and normalize their hemoglobin A1C and their glycemia on, you know, people have done it on the potato diet. People oh, have done absolutely. it on high, sure. high, high, high glycemic index, uh, um, high fruit diets. So, you know, it is fascinating to hear that, that kind of take, especially also because, you know, we've talked about the microbiome quite a lot on our podcast and kind of how it's really the research of the gut microbiome. And let me know your thoughts, but it appears to be really in its infancy, although it's super interesting and and could lead to a lot of really fascinating data. And I certainly recommend, you know, that we continue researching it. At this point, There isn't really a lot of robust data on the gut microbiome and knowing that a change from, you know, this population of bacteria to this population of bacteria leads to an exact hard outcome with a clinically significant endpoint. So what's wild to me is that even though we don't have robust gut microbiome data at this time to know what clinically relevant and significant endpoints there are, it's fascinating that there's, of course, already companies selling home gut microbiome tests. I I couldn't agree
0: more. I mean, at best, I mean, it's super complex. How do you even say, even if you were to, to design a clinical trial, pre-specify a primary outcome and say, we're looking for changes in the microbiome. What does that even mean that you get greater enrichment of one type of bacteria or not that it could mean literally, literally infinitesimal things. And so it's so vague. It's, it's, again, it's easy to fudge a statement by saying oh we saw an increase in this kind of bacteria and a decrease and that's associated with good health but i don't i, I don't think anyone has a clue really what it means but if you look i mean this is a quote taken from a website selling a, a, a product for type 2 diabetes it says people need personalized dietary recommendations based on a number of things including the microbiome to effectively manage glucose control
2: unbelievable and
0: that's not true. I mean, you could say oh weight loss can help manage people, people's blood, blood glucose,
2: exercise, high fiber, exercise,
0: fiber, uh, it, you know, a ton of different healthy dietary approaches can do that. The idea that you even need to measure a person's microbiome when you're managing them for type two diabetes is just nonsense. And it's selling a product.
2: It really is. And, it, and it's wild to me because I didn't realize until we did our GI episode that there were home gut microbiome tests, that this was common. And this was kind of a, a way that uh, people were selling personalized nutrition. And I was like, wait a second, we don't even know in actual trials what these shifts in certain colonies of bacteria really mean with regards to hard outcomes. But of course, in the world we live in, we're already selling a product for it putting the cart before the, you know, horse.
0: Absolutely. And it, it, it's crazy to me that you wouldn't accept a pharma company doing a phase one trial and then selling that to people saying this works. How it's acceptable in nutrition is just mind blowing to me.
2: That is such an excellent point, Nicola, because imagine if there was a pharma company selling a medication for the gut microbiome right now um, that was coming from Pfizer. I mean, could you imagine the outrage? People would say, "Well, what's the actual outcome we're looking at? What is the hard endpoint? What does it even mean when you shift to the gut microbiome, x, y, or Z? And because it's in nutrition, it just gets blown past, and they're able to profit and make so much money from this kind of pseudoscience. And I have to say, like it's not just the lack
0: of evidence behind these claims that bothers them. Like that should bother us when our most prestigious institutions are supporting this stuff. But it's also that it comes along with this narrative. And it's always with varying degrees of subtlety of, look, we finally found out the secret. And, you know, that the subtext of that is all of the people involved in the dietary guidelines are idiots. All the advice you've, you've heard about having lots of plants, fruits, veg, healthy fats, all of that is out of date science you know, buy our book, buy our product, we've figured out the secret. That's the the, the subtext to it, which is really, really harmful. Um, like, I have no problem with these people saying, we think this might be more helpful. So we're going to do the trials to see whether it actually improves clinical outcomes, design that trial properly. And then once they get the results, they can talk about it. And I have to be really clear what that trial should look like, because I think you might have had Kevin Clout on your show before, and he's really big in talking about what's the control group. And so that's really important here. When people are testing these personalized biomarker based apps, what is the control group? So the control group has to be your standard healthy diet, lots of fruit and veg, nuts, seeds, stuff that we know is good as far as we know what that means for the microbiome, stuff that we know is generally good for cardiometabolic disease and compare it to this personalized app. Does the personalization based on whatever you're saying, based on the microbiome, based on a metabotype, based on some biomarker, it does that personalization have any added value? Does it improve weight loss at six months? Does it improve blood glucose at six months and making it having a fair comparative group?
2: I couldn't agree more. And then adding to that too, also, is the control group, if this was actually to be appropriately studied, um, adding to the control group, you know, the control group that's recommended to have a healthy diet, et cetera, you would have to standardize it and make sure that they were actually doing the exact same home tests, home biomarker tests, et cetera, because things that we think of too, right? Things like just, hey, um, having your blood glucose monitored, or even just downloading the app. We don't know how much these non-actually dietary things may be impacting someone's behavior.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's one of those things as well. It, it bugs me when many of these companies have a pilot study and a pilot study is always a great place to start, but that's all it is. It's a starting point. You shouldn't be selling anything and using wordings that these, the wordings the companies are using based on the pilot study. Because of course, if you intervene, in any way, shape or form of the person's life, they change their behavior. This is the Hawthorne effect. We've known this forever. So you have these statements like, oh, we had 150 people in a pilot study. We found significant reductions in hunger. We found significant increases in energy levels. I mean, what does all this even mean? You were paying people attention. They change their behavior. They change the way they feel. They report different things. You have to have a control group. And none of these, none of these companies have performed this study yet. And you're absolutely right, the control group has to be matched for intensity so that everything an individual's doing in the control group matches what's happening in the intervention.
2: How do you think that they, they can get away with monetizing something? There's such limited data. How does this work? I mean, I guess similar to everything else in nutrition, but what are your thoughts on it?
0: I mean, I think a lot of people tend not to pay too much attention to nutrition because people don't think that it's that harmful. And and to be honest, I am sure what a lot of these apps are advising is, I I hope, increasing more plant-based foods, having more intact foods, um, fewer highly processed foods, and there's no argument there. But I mean, I don't know for sure that's what they're doing, but I would imagine most of them do that. And you think that's fantastic. But the, the two points to me that are really concerning is, is that it's coming along with this narrative of conventional science and scientists don't know what they're doing. That is a really dangerous message. And it's, it's not true. And, and to kind of use that narrative as a way of elevating yourself and your product is wholly wrong. But the second thing is is that I also worry that it's not just going to be the public who are swayed by these kinds of products. It's also policymakers. Mm. I mean, I've sat in in the European Parliament, I've sat with politicians and policymakers, and I would listen to people who have kind of pedometer-based apps and those kinds of companies convincingly giving a pitch in what's ostensibly most supposed to be a scientific discussion about how all we need to fix the lack of physical activity that lots of people do is we just need to make sure everyone has a pedometer, everyone has our app. And you see the policymakers falling for it because they want to believe that we don't have to change our environment. They would like to believe we haven't got to regulate the multi-billion dollar food industry. And if you come along and say, oh, we've got an app, we can get people exercising, we've got an app, we just need to have people eating according to their microbiome, that's gonna help everyone lose weight. It's nonsense. But policymakers, I think, will look for any excuse not to act on the things we need them to act on. And that is changing the food environment around us. And that's another danger, is that these policymakers will be swayed by the Harvards and Stanfords and Kings and and Oxford, though I hope no one at my institution is doing this. They're swayed by these big institutions because many of them trust
2: in the word of a scientist and and you know that is why the one default everyone listens to my podcast knows is that uh, at least with regards to American guidelines is that you will know when something has enough data in it that it ends up in our guidelines the reason why our uh, cardiology prevention guidelines do not have one of these personalized nutrition apps in our guidelines but we do have the recommendation to see a registered dietitian is because there's no data for using these apps whereas we know that seeing a registered dietitian could be helpful. I actually love the way that you say there is personalized nutrition and that could be by seeing a, a registered dietitian who can help work with the patient to work with their individual goals, wants, needs, their their individual preferences. I think that is such a great way. And even though it's like you mentioned not as sexy as an app that takes into account all these really scientific terms, you know, working with an actual registered dietitian one-on-one and figuring out what works for the individual what depending on whatever behavior intervention works best for them makes so much more sense. And I'm looking at one of the websites now for personalized nutrition. There's one here that starts out you have to buy a kit for 300 bucks and then you pay $60 a month. And this kit does gut microbiome, blood sugar, all of these things. I mean, that is no uh, you know, small price for something that does not have robust evidence. So it certainly is, to me, I think unethical. And I, I wish that we had more of a professional obligation to for people that are involved with these kinds of things to discuss how unethical it is. Um, and I think that actually I'm thankful for people like you, of course, people like Dr. Jen Gunter and for people like Kevin Klatt. You know, a lot of us have spent a lot of time on social media doing this kind of discussion and I'm trying to elucidate what the wellness industry is is doing. But I mean, that is no small price for some of these programs. Oh, absolutely not. And you could imagine, I mean,
0: particularly with with people with obesity, people with type 2 diabetes, they are desperate for anything that can help them. Uh, you have to imagine most individuals will, will have been struggling with diet for much, if not all of their lives. And it, it's really hurtful to me that institutions would make promises based on data that's not true to, to really snare people who don't have the knowledge to understand what they're reading. And they think, oh, well, these are the you know best scientific institutions in the world. They must have found the secret. And so when I, I did my PhD at Imperial, and we had a laboratory that was working on obesity medications, actually, they did a lot of, of work on the kind of the GLP-1 agonists, on PYY and a lot of the gut hormones, they were doing really legitimate research, but as a result of that, every single time we put out an advert wanting volunteers for a study into overweight and obesity, we were inundated because people really want to believe that you found finally found the thing that can work. So it's it's especially wrong to me that you have these institutions preying on that and. I imagine, I mean, sure, I, I think a lot of the people that are purchasing these products, maybe they have a lot of disposable income. But I also imagine there are people who are desperate enough Boy. that they want to believe that spending $500 on, you know, whatever these baseline assessments are and getting quote unquote personalized advice based on their whatever biomarker sounds sexy and sciencey they want
2: to believe that's going to work. What are your thoughts on the claim? I'm seeing from the same one that I mentioned to you on their website. They claim it reduces inflammation caused by your dietary uh, um, choices, which is such a buzzword. So what are your thoughts there?
0: In, inflammation is one of those terms that's as vague and and difficult to define and, and poorly understood the same way the microbiome is. I mean, so in, you have inflammatory factors that have a purpose in the body. And in fact, some of them are cell signaling, signaling molecules. If you take TNF alpha out of a cell, for example, the cell stops working properly. Obesity is associated with elevated tumor necrosis factor alpha. So is type 2 diabetes. So there's an association there. In the same way, there's an association between certain patterns of, of the microbiome and obesity. What does it all mean? No one's got any idea. And if, unless you have causal data showing that your particular diet, and again taking into account a proper trial with a good control group, unless you've got data showing your particular personalized diet improved in a predictable way that you say ahead of time, a priori, is going to change. And then that happens and you get a a meaningful clinical outcome. Unless you have all of that causal data, and that's probably multiple trials to demonstrate, then you shouldn't be saying nonsense like that.
2: And You know, what's frustrating too is that if you look at some of these companies, they've raised millions upon millions of dollars in funding. And so- Well, I'm going to, my post tomorrow is going
0: to be laughing at how gullible biotech investors are.
2: (laughs) Actually elaborate on that. Explain.
0: I mean, because you have, I mean, I don't know this field. I've never worked with investors. Uh, I've met a couple of them. And in general, they tend to be optimists. And they tend to, you know, believe in innovation, and they think something can work. So I think they give exactly they give scientists the benefit of the doubt because they want to believe this works. And if you have a team of people from Stanford, Oxford, Harvard, MIT, or walking into a room using buzzwords like inflammatory pathways, like the metabolite, all of this stuff, if, if you have someone who's an econ major, how are they going to know? And so so they buy into this. And I've got to say like a couple of the papers from the Israeli group, when I read the abstract, I was kind of intrigued. And like all things, until you take the time to, to read properly through all the supplementary data and really see what they did and what their algorithm advised people to do, unless you really go through all of that and have the time to do that, you could also be fooled. And I very much doubt any one of these investors has the time to shift time or the skills to shift through all of these papers and figure out what they did and is it legitimate and I, I think that's really sad because I think we need investors to invest in
2: things like the moderna vaccine, for example, that actually works. Great point. and yeah the the, the frustrating thing is you can look up you know some of these companies with these personalized nutrition programs they've raised millions and millions of, do- of dollars and they could do the ethical thing, which is a well controlled, robust, a randomized controlled trial with actual actually clinically significant endpoints that they're looking at but they're not. And so it's unfortunate because it becomes a factor of of just profit over patients. You know and I think
0: the one of the things that the scientific community should be doing is pushing these companies towards generating trial data. But then you have this point and it it's like what happened with the T word that we won't mention is they hid and they hid and they hid and they asked for more and more money until they couldn't hide anymore that their blood testing equipment was, was complete rubbish you know what I mean yeah yeah I mean the- I said the t-word yeah yeah <laughs> like, and, and and that's what I can see happening to these companies because yeah. like I said I don't think I, I I've read through the the studies by the Israeli group and I I I don't think they their algorithm and their model of care let's call it is doing what they think it's doing right I, I think that they think it's all this sexy microbiome stuff and like i said it's you're not giving people very dis- distinct disparate diets you're giving them all the same diet because it's based on the glycemic factors and that's one thing i mean let's say okay sure your algorithm it might be really expensive you don't need to do the microbiome, but at least it's shifting people towards a diet that can lower their blood glucose. But like you said before, there's a glucose-centric approach in this type of model. If it's just based on the CGM, that's why you need trials because you do want to look at other risk, cardiovascular risk factors and vascular function and blood pressure and all of those things. So even when people are trying to do the studies, you've really got to be convinced by the long-term data on genuine health outcomes not just what a blood glucose is doing
2: absolutely and that's why that's why i sound like a broken record but we always say that the your foolproof way to know if something is nonsense or not is to check guidelines because we have an entire episode with dr martha gulati who is president of the american society of preventive cardiology who is just chair of the ACC/AHA uh, chest pain guidelines and she describes the entire guideline process for everyone um, listening and the extensive peer review it goes through in the US. And so, something like this, like one of these programs, if someone brought this into our guidelines, we get laughed at, you know, just be immediately shoved aside. There's just not enough data. When you're actually systematically grading scientific evidence to be as a health recommendation in a guideline, it gets graded in a systematic way to evaluate the level of evidence and how robust it is. And something like this would get tossed aside. but the sad part is is that that they can still sell it as if it does have this robust backing and and things like that and so it, it's just it's fascinating and these programs are multiplying like you really do you google personalized nutrition and they are everywhere but at some point people are going to realize the emperor's
0: got no clothes ah! right yes I mean- I know a couple of these companies are doing trials and you look, I'll be the, you can have me, you can have me back on if one of those trials shows Absolutely. actually helps and, helps and I'll turn around and I'll say, right, there's evidence for it. Really? Make, make claims, right. That would be, that would be fantastic if, if one of these companies did that, but right now they shouldn't be making these claims. And like I said, there's going to come a, a point and I don't think those trials are going to show what the companies think they're going to show. Cause I don't think they're going to work based on all of the data so far. And then w- the money is going to run out, surely. Once a study has been published and there's a null uh, finding, how do you then go to a bunch of investors and say, please give us another 20 million because we performed basically as, as well as the traditional American or sorry, Mediterranean diet, for example.
2: Yep. There are I mean, it's literally, <laughs> it, you're right. It, it is the same. And, and I do think that I hope with the pub like the publicity that came around the Theranos scandal, I do think that there may be some more caution with biotech stuff, given how you know explosive that entire scandal was. But yeah, I think you're right. And nutrition, it's one of those things that people figure, oh, it's it's harmless enough, but in reality, you know, whether it's a financial um, harm that someone incurs, a cost that is. Uh, you know, that they think that these claims are true and they make a financial investment or whether it is actually shifting their diet to something that could be maybe not ideal for them or, you know, whatever it may be. That's why we always say that anecdotes are hypothesis generating, but in order to make a recommendation for everyone, it should be something that has really robust data that shows that there are more benefits than risks. And it clearly doesn't stop people from selling it. What do you think your tips are for anyone listening who's kind of, you know, they're listening and they're like, damn it, I just paid for one of these programs and, you know, <laughs> I, or, or someone who's thinking about it. And what would be your advice for them to kind of sort out what all of this means? I mean, you know, I have to say my,
0: my first thought would be if you can send the device back and get a refund. I agree. You go for it and, and spend the money on a gym membership or, you know, fresh dietitian. Food, fresh food delivery, something like that. Um, that would be my advice. In terms of, I mean, this is the thing that I think is really, really hard for people to navigate. And it's why I am, maybe some people would say aggressive on social media about it. Because I always think about people like my mom and dad, who are intelligent people, but they're not trained. And I think, how would they perceive this kind of stuff? And I don't think that I don't think anymore there is an easy way to indicate to people whether something is legitimate or not, because how on earth could you, if something has Harvard or Stanford on it, if something is backed up by peer reviewed scientific studies and the public know that now they know that peer review is important. They have an idea of what that is. If you have those two factors combined, it gives this veneer of legitimacy. How would you as an individual know how to question that?
2: Guidelines. Um, That's the only way. That's the only backing way you can you can you can go through is go look at. That's what I always say. Go check the guidelines. If it's not in the guidelines for the U.S. guidelines for whether it's cardiovascular disease, hypertension, lipids, or diabetes, then move on.
0: You know, I, I would say that's true, and I would say that that is that is the the red line that you're talking about, right? But I still think there's always things that are new, and sometimes they can take a long time to you know, be implemented. So for example, at Oxford, we're doing a five-year study looking at trying to implement choice and systematic choice within the NHS to get remission of type 2. Now it's a five-year-long evaluation, probably another year after that till we get results. So we might find halfway through that the data is looking promising. And As long as you're explaining to people that we don't have the full evaluation yet, but this is what we think is happening, we think we're moving in the right direction. I think that's okay. Similarly, for example, you won't find in diabetes guidelines or nutritional guidelines for diabetes this idea that a high protein, low carb diet can improve blood glucose. Because most of the studies are shorter. And they've had to be because they are well-controlled. So in general, like the long-term one-year studies are fairly loose. We don't know what people are eating really. So they're not completely precise. They tend to be of lower quality. And sadly, those are the studies that are accepted into guidelines.
2: I would say that for the US guidelines, the guidelines for nutrition for diabetes from the American Endocrinology Society um, and also the diabetes for preventive cardiology are all the same. So it just recommends fruits, vegetables, vegetables you know, obviously intact whole grains, if you eat them, legumes, nuts, seeds, and lean, um, like fatty fish, uh, lean protein, low saturated fat. So I would say in the US, at least it's very consistent with the evidence that we have. So recommending for a, for a healthy dietary pattern, which don't specify whether you have to do low carb or high carb, which I think you and I both agree with that it, it can be, it can be a variety. You can have a healthy diet of any macronutrient,
0: you know, profile. Oh, for sure. And there are definitely lots of ways of, of managing it. But I guess what I'm saying is, as long as you are giving people advice with the right language. And so, j- just going back to the high protein, low carb thing, I understand why that's not in guidelines. There hasn't been the definitive trial yet. Um, and that's the way guidelines do work. And until there is good evidence for something, it generally doesn't appear in there. Oh, and really sadly, nice. we haven't done a great job at doing the kind of trials that would provide that definitive evidence. So I, I do agree with you. I think I'm a little happier outside of guidelines working in my own clinical practice because I feel like I know the literature really well. But for anyone, you're absolutely right. Anyone at home who's thinking, oh, is, is this a thing? Should I be having like the cauliflower only diet or should I be following some crazy program? <laughs> if it's not in the guidelines, you know, that, that's a good place to indicate maybe some of to yeah. yeah,
2: totally, totally. I mean- Because the further people go from the guidelines, the more we have, you know, people saying, "Well, all fruit's gonna kill you," or we have we have vegans saying fatty fish is bad for you, which we know is not true. And then we have the carnivores saying, you know, that uh, raspberries are bad for you. So it's just it's all over the place. And so yeah, with these and even with these programs, it does appear that a lot of the personalized nutrition programs that the recommendations, like you mentioned, even just from me googling them. Are generally healthful dietary, you know, advice eating more fruits, vegetables, plant foods, which seems generally benign and probably a, a benefit. But you you think about the claims made, and like you you mentioned, they they're really just putting a bit more ahead of where the science actually is. Yeah,
0: and and I would see, I would say, with some of those statements, and you've read some of them out of off the websites yeah. in this discussion. Some of them are. 20 years ahead of where the Yeah.
2: Are. And, you know, even claiming to retrain your biology, like, what does that mean? <laughs> and again, like, I think about my mom and dad. And if it was some
0: very fancy doctor saying that on TV, I think they'd be interested.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for breaking this down because this is certainly a very popular topic. Is there anything else you wanted to add in about personalized nutrition before we before we go? So, there? so
0: I had a couple of people actually, quite a few people DMing me after I did my trashing personalized nutrition. It was
2: amazing. Your tutorial, by the way, was fantastic.
0: And so, so I'm I'm going to talk about it more on my Twitter this week to clarify things. But there are companies doing really good things, and I mentioned this at the very beginning. Where I think there is real utility and promise for tech is using big data to give people personalized behavioral recommendations. So because if you have data on some, all of their habits, even historical habits, if you have that, what they're currently eating, if you want to shift that person towards a different macro composition of the diet, for example, you could do that in a much more personalized way when you have data on them. And that's, I think, a really going to be a really useful application of tech, because if you imagine if you were running like the National Diabetes Prevention Program in the UK and it's, it's running groups. Imagine the time it takes to go around to every single person in the room to instruct them on having, let's say, five portions of fruit or veg a day based on their current intake and their taste you would have to go around to every individual person figure out what they liked figure out what they're currently eating to meet their recommendation whereas you can scale that up really easily using tech because the the it won't need an individual or lay or you know personal labor to give a specific instruction to an individual it's all automated and so that automation based on big data um driving behavioral change is going to be really useful and that's where i think tech is going to have a really big place you know, a place to, to, uh, improve the health of the population. I think that's promising. It's just, and this is me being skeptical. I think lots of companies are realizing how crowded this space is and they want to stand apart. And that's where you get this sexy stuff of, Oh, we figured it out. Uh, we'll check this biomarker and we'll tell you whether or not strawberries are a food you should eat or not.
2: <laughs> no. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, well said. Well, thank you so much for uh, this deep dive and please tell everyone where they can find you on social media so that way they can look and see and, and gaze and do totally absorb all of your phenomenal tutorials, especially your GIF game is strong. Okay? <laughs> oh so tell them where they can find you. Uh, I am on Twitter and Instagram as
0: Dr. Underscore Underscore Guests.
2: Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Nico. And we'll have you on again soon. to Talk about your specific research which is phenomenal.
1: Thank you, Danielle. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness bag you'd like debunked next, and I'll get to the bottom of it follow me on Instagram at neilblardomd and our podcast page at Wellness Fact Versus Fiction and be sure to tune in next week.